All right, John 15, verses 9 to 12. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. May the Lord bless this reading to us today. Over the last uh, few weeks, Sarah and I have been praying for Abide and uh, what the Lord has in store for us this year. And I got a picture of a foundation. I remember when Ronnie built his house. Um, there was so much work in <laughs> the foundation of Ronnie's house because it's built on a quite a steep hill. And I think he, I think he had to put a special re- wall that, that went down about s- six feet or something. Remember that? And we had to backfill it with sand and pack it down and then... I, I helped a little bit. <laughs> so, and, and then you got to the stage where the concrete was poured and all the pipes were in the right place and it seemed to take forever to get to that place. But it has to be right, right? <laughs> because if you start putting up the walls and it's not square or something, uh, the rest of the build is a nightmare, apparently. We didn't find out, did we? we the royal we yeah that's right so I think the Lord is was saying um, that over the last five years he has established a foundation and the foundation is now complete for abide church and now he's going to build on it and uh, in the past I've always uh, been tempted to to think what I would like the finished building to look like if you like I you know the the height maybe the height and the the complexity and the fittings and all that kind of stuff. But I've kind of learnt that building God's church is his, his business. And what it looks like will be up to him. Big or small, uh, flash or plain, it's his call. Our role is to focus on the things he has called us to do. And as we step into 24, uh, Sarah and I believe that God is wanting us to focus on discipleship and evangelism. Discipleship being the ongoing process of submitting our lives to the Lordship of Christ and evangelism being the process of having a contagious faith that attracts others to Jesus. But it's very easy with both discipleship and evangelism in the whole of the Christian life actually, in my experience, for our motivation to be this is what I should be doing, this is what I should be doing instead of this is what I want to do. There's a big difference uh, with that. And something that Tim Keller uh, uh, said that I came across last year has stuck with me, which was something like, unless love for God is our motivating force, law-keeping will be a destructive force in our lives. Unless love for God is our motivating force, law-keeping, obedience to God, will be a destructive force in our lives. And that challenged me, because I realized that much of my life I've obeyed because it's been the right thing to do. Yes, I've loved God and I've wanted to please him, but there's been a significant part of me that's like, this is what I should be doing. For various reasons. But this motivation will only carry us so far before we burn out. And burning out and laboring, I think is a sign that we are obeying because we should, we think we should 
rather than in a response of love. So what do we do about that? Well, don't hear me say that we should only do what we feel like doing. That's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. Living out of motivation of love is, is a decision, I think, more than anything else. For example, <clears throat> I love Sarah dearly. And, but there are times that I'm concentrating and doing something and Sarah comes in and wants me to do something. And to be honest, I find it a little annoying because I'm doing what I want to do and I feel like I'm getting interrupted. And uh, it, it kind of feels like it's cutting across what I think is important. <clears throat> and it's easy for me to go, okay, all right. And to do what she wants me to do out of emotion, motivation of not wanting to disappoint her or uh, wanting to show her and others that I'm actually a good husband because that's what good husbands do, right? They do what their wives want them to do. <clears throat> or even uh, if I don't do what she wants me to do, then she might not do what I want her to do sometimes. So all of that, yeah, you can do it, but it's not going to sustain. It's not going to sustain you. So what I'm focusing on now deliberately focusing on is asking God to help me make the motivation for doing what she wants because I love her right it's a response of love and that's the decision that happens in the moment there's the initial right as the request comes in and then it's like no Lord I want to do it because I love her and then in that moment it changes the feeling changes from being a negative to a positive and I think that's the same with our walk with God. So the request of God can seem like, oh, sometimes, right? And one of the main things that we feel God calling us to is prayer. Praying for others, our church, ourselves, praying for people to come to the Lord. And sometimes, you know, we were talking about this yesterday, it can be like, oh, Really? But if we keep our motivation, if we ask God to help us keep our motivation, love for him and love for, for other people, it will be sustaining for us. So for that reason, we're going to delve into a short series on love. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another. And it was inspired by a question in the Lectio for families that we came across in the break which was this. What difference does God's love make in your life? <clears throat> so as I reflected on this question for myself, there were three uh, responses that came to my mind. Firstly, God's love in Christ is a powerful story within which my own life finds meaning and purpose. Secondly, God's love is a spiritual reality. I can experience God's love in the moment, day by day. And that's incredibly life-giving for me. Without that love that the Holy Spirit pours into my heart, I would shrivel up and I think I would spiritually wither. And thirdly, God's love is the only sustaining motivation for obedience to Jesus' commands that makes doing the right thing life-giving, and that's coming back to what Tim Keller said. 
So today we're going to cover these points and maybe as you think about uh, them, maybe think about how you would answer this question. What difference does God's love make in your life? Some of you might know who this person is. Does anyone know who this person is? No one? Cool. <laughs> no. Her name is Ayan Hersi Ali, and she was, until November last year, an atheist, and before that, a former Muslim. And she used to speak alongside other prominent atheists like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and was well known as one of the leaders of the New Atheist Movement. And she was and still is a prominent critic of Islam. In fact, when she renounced the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith in early, the early 2000s, she collaborated with another guy called Theo van Gogh in a short film which depicted the oppression of women under um, the strict Islamic regime. And the film led to death threats, and uh, when the film was released, uh, Theo van Gogh was actually murdered by a, a Muslim fundamentalist um, while he was riding his bike. And, and she, uh, Ayan, went into hiding. So she is very, she's a courageous, very courageous woman. She's familiar with standing up for what she believes. Uh, and in November last year, quite recent, she wrote an article entitled, Why I Am Now a Christian. What reason did she give for her conversion? She gave two reasons. The first one was the power of the Christian story. In the article, she stated that Western civilization is under threat from three different but related forces. The resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the form of the Chinese Communist Party in Vladimir Putin's Russia, the rise of global Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West, and the viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral, moral fiber of the next generation. The woke ideology, oh, I'll, explain, I'll explain it right now. Uh, in response to these threats, secular humanism has come up short. Why? Because it has no story, right? Secular humanism has no story within which we can find our place. And uh, the, the new atheists hoped that uh, when they did their major push in the early 2000s, the catch cry, God is dead, would lead to a new age of reason and intelligent humanism. But that didn't happen. Instead, uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali says that the God hole, which she refers to, the God hole, has been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma that offers spurious reasons for being in action, mostly by engaging in virtue, virtue signaling theatre on behalf of a victimised minority or our supposedly doomed planet. That's what she wrote. A jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma that offers spurious reasons for being in action, mostly by engaging in virtue signaling theatre on behalf of a victimised minority or our supposedly doomed planet. And she quotes uh, the line often attributed to a guy called G.K. Chesterton, which she thinks has been prophetically filled, which is, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. 
they then become capable of believing in anything. And I think we can see some of the bizarre conclusions of gender ideology, for example, as being an expression of nonsensical beliefs that are not able to be justified by science or any aspect of uh, human experience. So that's woke ideology, essentially. The virtue signaling theatre um, on behalf of a victimised minority or our supposedly doomed planet. So pretty strong words from Ayan Hersey Ali. And she asked the question, what resources or what resource do we have that has the power to respond to these threats? And she writes, fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. Amazing, isn't it, that she would write that. The legacy of the Judeo-Christian worldview consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life freedom and dignity, from the nation state and the rule of law to the institutions of science, health and learning. As Tom Holland has shown in his marvellous book Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market of conscience and of the press find their roots in Christianity. Pretty amazing, isn't it? This is someone who was a leader of the New Atheist Movement and she has come to this conclusion. And in these words, and I think they're correct, they're absolutely correct. In these words, I see another fulfillment of the Lord's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Western civilization is itself a gift from God, I believe, and the freedom that, freedoms that we have enjoyed. And everyone, as part of Western civilization, has been blessed, whether they acknowledge it or not, because of this reason. But the power of the story of God's love for his creation is not limited to a civilizational uh, aspect. It's a story within which we can live our own lives. And Ayan Hesi Ali continues. She says this, Yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? <coughs> Pretty amazing words, isn't it? Atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. It hasn't got anything. It's like going to a, uh, a fight with a, a toy pistol. The meaning and purpose of life. Christianity has it all. And in the book of Philippians, Paul wrote these words. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, <clears throat> but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. That is meaning and purpose right there. Right? That's what Christianity is. That is the hope of our faith. <coughs> what greater meaning can life have than being called to know and be friends with the one who created us, redeemed us by his own blood and rose from the dead, assuring us that death is not the end? There's a movie called uh, The Fifth Element. I don't know if you've seen it. It's from the 90s, I think. And uh, it's got Bruce Willis in it. He's a good man, old Bruce. And uh, Miller Jojovitz. <clears throat> and in the story set in the year 2263, a giant evil sentient fireball appears in, front of, in space in front of the earth. And it's a very menacing looking thing. And it's intent on destroying earth. And the only thing that can defeat it is a weapon consisting of four special stones that have to be placed in a certain order. And a fifth element that activates them. And the fifth element turns out to be Mila Jojovich's humanoid character, Lilu. Unfortunately for everyone, though, Lilu has learned of humanity's history of cruelty and bloodshed, and she gives up on life and th uh, threatening the earth. And then in the final scene, uh, they've got all the four stains in place, and they're all, all activated. And the main characters are trying to wake Lilu up and so she can, she can complete the weapon and destroy the evil blob. But when Bruce Willis's character, whose name is Corbin, no relation, <clears throat> tries to convince her to complete the stones because life on earth might be destroyed, Lulu asks, what is the use of saving life when you see what you guys do with it? What is the use of saving life when you see what you do with it? And images of the atomic bomb and the, and the Nazis flash up on the screen. And in response, Corbin says, well, love. Love is worth saving the world for. And Lulu says, I don't know love. I was built to protect, not to love. There will be no more use for me after this. And Corbin, Corbin says, you're wrong, because I need you. And, no, no, wait, wait. And because, and the other guy's going, say it, Corbin, say it. I love you. That's exactly right. He says, I love you. And then he kisses her and suddenly this incredible laser-like beam like zaps around the stones and goes bzzz, and into space and this evil blob is destroyed. What's that got to do with our story? So close and yet so far. <clears throat> yes, romantic love is a beautiful and fulfilling thing, isn't it? <clears throat> but can it answer the fundamental questions of meaning and purpose in life? And more importantly, can it compensate for all the atrocities that humanity uh, has committed, as the movie seems to suggest? And the romantic part of us kind of wants to say, yes, but deep down we know, no. Right? I got to the end of that movie and it's just, it, it, it kind of pointed to something beautiful and then it kind of fell, like a blob hitting the ground. And you kind of left, kind of, no, you didn't really quite get it. It's not enough romantic love. It never has been. Otherwise, the world would be a different place, wouldn't it? So close and yet so far. But here's where the movie got very close. There is a love that is sufficient and strong. 
in and of itself to give us meaning and purpose. And there is a love whose sacrifice has paid for all the atrocities of humanity. And that love is God's love for us in Christ Jesus. So at a point, it got so close, but in the end it pointed to the wrong love. Jesus said in our reading today, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Remain. Other Bible versions have abide, which is where we got our, our name for our church from. The words mean don't depart, don't leave. Continue to be present. Stay with me. Remain. The Bible is a love story about a hero who will stop at nothing to win back the object of his love. We are the object of the love of Jesus, both individually and collectively. This story has the power not only to give us reason to live as individuals and families and churches and communities, but shows us how to love as well. So that's our first reason. The this, this story of the gospel, the story of Jesus' love, is a, is a very powerful narrative within which we can find our place. But it's not just this. God's love is a spiritual reality, and that's our second point. It's a spiritual reality that we can experience. And over the break, Sarah and I were discussing with our good friends, Graham and Heather, about contemplative prayer. And Heather was talking about um, how wonderful she finds contemplative prayer, something that um, she finds uh, incredibly meaningful. She closes her eyes, and in the silence, she feels the presence of God surrounding her. She, she feels it. And she, com she compared it like, you can be with someone but not be able to see them, and you still know it, right? You can still know you're with someone, even though you can't see them because you've got your eyes closed. And that's the way she likened it. And I'm sure we've all felt the sensation of someone else being present but not being able to see them. And for here, the contemplative prayer was like that. And being energized and filled with the Holy Spirit and his presence and power. And I'm, I'm the same. I find contemplative prayer the same thing. And one um, metaphor that's really helped me in that understand and engage with contemplative prayer is the hongi, the Maori greeting, where you press noses with each other. And he explained to me that the, the greeting was not just about uh, touching noses, but it was about exchanging breath, exchanging breath. So one person breathes in the other's breath and vice versa when pressing noses together. That's, that's ideally what happens. So while I find that a bit awkward when I'm doing that with another um, human being, especially when they've had a good feed of curry, uh, it's, it's helped me greatly when I, I do that with the Lord. And the Spirit, the Lord's face is there in my spirit. I close my eyes and, and the, Lord, the Lord's face comes to me. And that's, I think that's what it means when it says, seek my face. Literally, seek the face of God in prayer. And the face of God comes here and I look into his eyes and he he pours his breath into me, and I breathe out my sinful breath. And, and as we do that, I feel myself filling up in the Spirit. It's something that I can experience. It's not just, it's not just a, a, an intellectual exercise. Another image that I found helpful is a picture of a jug of water being poured into my, into my soul. I close my eyes, and, and I picture the, the jug of water, spiritual water that's being poured into me. 
and I've, I've literally feel myself filling up, filling up in my heart. This intimacy is only possible in the light of the Christian story and the teaching of Christ, which tells us that God is real, he's transcendent, he's personal, and he loves us. He, he loves each one of us individually. No other religion offers this framework within which we can relate to God and receive his love, literally receive his love. Perhaps some of you here haven't experienced that type of intimacy with God in prayer before. If that's you, can I encourage you? Get alone with God this afternoon. Try it out. If some of those images or metaphors help, try them out. If they don't, ask God for something that, that relates to you, something that you, will, you can engage with and you can receive God's love for you. So to actually experience that kind of thing, God's love literally, is one of the greatest gifts in life, in my opinion. Like I say, without it, I would feel like I'd be shriveling up, honestly. So, God's love is a story, a powerful story. It's a, an experience where we can literally receive his love. And finally, it's a motivation for obedience. In our reading today, Jesus commanded us to love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. If we do that, we will remain in his love. Now, it's easy to think that, that we, have to, we have to go away and do that, as if we leave God behind and then we go and do that ourselves. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as I have loved you, look at me, look how I have loved you, and then you will know how to love someone else. Look at my example, and then you will find motivation. You will find the ability to love because you yourself have been loved. You know that. Jesus modeled love for us. He set the example. It's because we have been loved by him that we know how to love others, which can be difficult. And it's hard to get this right. Seems that the human condition is to want to prove ourselves to ourselves and everyone around us that we're not bad people. We're actually good people. That's right. I'm a good person. And I've had people insist to me that they're good people. And there are many examples of this. I've mentioned my own propensity to want to please not just my wife, but other people. That I'm, that I'm a good person because I, I, I don't disappoint them. Right? <laughs> I don't want to give them any reason to think that I'm a bad person. And this is a human condition, I think. As, as Ayan Hersi Ali mentioned, the characteristic of the woke movement is engaging in virtue signaling theatre on behalf of a victimised minority or our supposedly doomed planet. What's the virtue signaling theatre? It's saying, hey, look at me, everyone. I'm doing the good thing here, which means that I'm a good person. And all you guys have to think that I'm a good person because I'm doing this good thing. And it's widespread, right? That's a human condition. And motivation, in terms of motivation for doing good, how robust is that? How robust is the motivation of wanting to show everyone that you're a good person? It might keep you going for a little while. <laughs> it is exhausting. It is spiritual labor. That's what spiritual labor is. 
spending all your time trying to prove that you're a good person. And it's exhausting. And that's why so many people identify with Eugene Peterson's translation of Matthew 11:28. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? That's what it is. Even though they don't claim to be religious, they're doing exactly the religious thing, which is trying to prove that you're a good person by what you do. Come to me. Come to Jesus. Get away with me. Stop doing that stuff. Stop it. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. You see? As I have loved you, so love each other. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Obedience can flow out of us when we get our motivation right. When the love of God fills us, obedience can flow. And it doesn't feel like work. It actually feels fulfilling. Jesus said, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, remain, abide, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. At the start of last year, I committed to praying for someone that the Lord had put on my heart for the whole year. And I did pretty good, I think. But I got to the end of the year, and then I kind of burnt out a little. I'm not sure how it happened. But somewhere along the way, I, my prayer life became something that I felt I should be doing rather than something that I wanted to do. And I lost, I lost the ability to do it because I was like, oh, really? Can't do it. And that's what I'm talking about. Instead of remembering how Jesus prayed for me, remember he prayed for all of his disciples. I didn't look at his example. Jesus prayed for me. On the cross even, he prayed for me. All of his disciples. Instead of taking that motivation and then saying, okay, Jesus prayed for me. Now I can pray for someone else. I forgot that. I forgot to do that critical step. So, God's love, responding to God's love by looking at Jesus, looking at his example, that can become our motivating force and that will sustain us. That's the only thing that will sustain us in doing good. So as we close today, I'd like to return to the question, what difference does God's love make in your life? Maybe there's someone here who has yet to find their meaning and purpose in the greatest love story ever. If that's you, why don't you come forward for prayer after the service? We'd love to pray that you would receive Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and find your place in his story. Perhaps you've never experienced the tangible presence of God's love in prayer in the way that we've been describing today. If that's you, again, come forward. Remember Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. You can experience that beautiful presence of the Lord in your life. It's so precious. And finally, maybe you're feeling a little spiritually exhausted or burned out. Maybe your spiritual life feels like a bit of a desert at the moment. If that's you, why don't you come forward for prayer too? 
And we'll pray that the streams of living water that Jesus promised might flow through your heart once again. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love. Lord, we say it so many times, and we can forget what it means. And yet, when we see someone like Ayan Hesi Ali be moved to such an incredible degree that she gives her life to you, acknowledges that she's a Christian now, and makes enemies not only of the Muslim world but the atheist world, Lord, that means something significant. Lord, it's a powerful story. Lord, help us to live within that story, to find our meaning and purpose within that story. And Lord, I pray that everyone here, that they would know your love as 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 an experience that they can have every day by turning to you and receiving your, your, your spiritual water, your food, Because that's what your love is, Lord. It's spiritual food and drink, bread and water, the water of life. Lord, I pray that everyone here would know that, experience that. And finally, Lord, we pray that your streams of living water would refresh us, replenish us. Everyone here, Lord, would pour your streams of living water, your love, that may it flow through each of our hearts, Lord. May we drink deeply so that we can obey you. As you have loved us, Lord, may we love each other and others. So, Lord, we thank you for your word that tells us that we are loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen.